Good morning. So, in the intervening years since we left the life of Joseph a couple weeks ago, the people of God have experienced a seismic shift. The text tells us that Joseph died, as did the Pharaoh who knew him and respected him. Instead, verse 8 of Exodus 2 says, the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph. This Pharaoh had no appreciation for what Joseph had done for Egypt or why his family had been granted a home among the Egyptian people. Instead of gratitude, the emotion that rose up in him was fear. He saw the people of God as a threat. Here was a man used to getting what he wanted with no contest, revered not only as a ruler, but seen as an actual deity to be worshipped. His fear drove him to a need for control, and his need for control drove him to the enslavement of an entire group of people. The people of God had grown mighty in number, and they could have fought back, though they showed no signs of doing so. So he chose not to completely destroy them, although he had tried, but to enslave them. Enslavement is a powerful tool of oppression because it not only traps the body, but the mind and the soul as well. The weapon of enslavement is so effective because after time, the enslaved party can no longer see themselves in any other light. They forget their belovedness and they see themselves only through the eyes of the enslaver. They do not try to escape to find a better life because they do not think they deserve it. And so the enslaver now exists, exerts multiple levels of control and a great confidence that those they have enlisted to labor for them will never leave. It is into this socio-emotional scene that Moses is born. We must, for the sake of time, fast forward a bit through the life of Moses. It's very exciting. Um, but in short, Moses is the flawed and internally tormented, timid man that God has chosen to walk straight into the courts of the Egyptian god king and speak directly to the face of power. Moses begs God to choose someone else, anyone else, but the Lord refuses. He promises he himself will go with Moses, but Moses must indeed use his voice alongside of his brother Aaron to confront Pharaoh. He must do this thing because God has heard the sigh of his people and he has heard them cry out in their bondage and he has said, no more. It is time. I have always wondered why God waited so long. We know according to Exodus 12, 41, that by this time the people of God have now been in Egypt for 430 years. We're not exactly sure when the enslavement began, but we can be sure that the Hebrew people who were now enslaved had never known anything different. And they didn't know anyone who had known anything else. We also know that by the time Moses shows up on the scene and speaks to the people, they do not listen to him, Exodus 6, 9 says, on account of their despondency 
or shortness of spirit and cruel bondage. Maybe this is why now, because God knew that his people had been living under the enslaver so long that they no longer knew who they were. They weren't even angry anymore because anger requires hope. They were just despondent. So God acts. He gives Moses a series of strange signs and wonders. This is where it gets exciting. I can hear the musical score from the 1998 animated film, The Prince of Egypt, in the background, right? As Moses and the Pharaoh face off, their faces getting closer, as the choral refrain in the background repeating a rhythmic, thus saith the Lord, right? Yeah. A river of blood, flies, frogs, darkness, the music soaring as the plagues intensify. Each time Moses asking the Pharaoh to let his people go, and each time hearing the Pharaoh say no, watching his heart grow harder and harder. The movie's Moses character delivering the line, all the innocent that suffer from your stubbornness and pride. And the Pharaoh character responding, then let my heart be hardened. And never mind how high the cost may grow, this will still be so. I will never let your people go. Now, I know, this is just one movie, even a cartoon's representation of the events here. And they have cast Val Kilmer and Ralph Fiennes as Egyptians. So take from it what we may. But I think it brings to life a human element of this series of interactions. Because reading the text, it's hard to make sense of this series of events. In the face of all this pain, why would the Pharaoh not give in? Was it about money? The loss of humans that he considered property? I think it was something more that this animated movie hints at. To give in would mean more than the loss of those he had enslaved. It would mean that he was not all-powerful, that what he had been taught about who he was as God and king was not, in fact, true, and that he wouldn't know how to function, let alone rule, without that identity. Who would he be? So he pushed on, even to the death of his son, and then, in a moment where his humanity splits through, perhaps staring at the body of his firstborn, he tells Moses to take the people and go. And so Moses does. The people have been prepared. They have been watching and waiting. They have covered their thresholds with the blood of the most valuable pure lamb that they could find. And they had waded through this last and most terrifying of plagues huddled together in their homes as the news spreads down the quiet streets and alleys. It's time. Here it is, right? Here it is, the hour of triumph. Good has won and evil has not. It's over, right? Well, sort of. I think if we were given a list of stories of scripture and we were asked to circle ones where that evoked positive affect, or all the good feelings, or those evoked negative affect, all the bad feelings, most of us would probably put the exodus from Egypt as positive, right? I know this is how I have always viewed the story, the great deliverance, the relief. 
And then the experience of the rest of the Old Testament is that God has done this amazing thing, but somehow his people are only ever whiny and cranky, ungrateful, and constantly sinning. I want for the next few moments here to look a little closer at the humanity of the story and wonder together where we might see ourselves and what we could learn from these very first ancestors of our faith and the God who loved them. The missing piece is this. The default that they have to not trust, to not feel safe, to panic at every new wrinkle in their story is not simply a rebellious fist shaken at the face of God. They were actually natural, normal, and even healthy responses to the existence that they had led to this point. The people of God had spent their whole lives believing that they had no value. They were worthless in the eyes of those in charge of them, the men that beat them every day, the Pharaoh that held their lives in the palm of his hand. They have been taught an economy of fear and scarcity, and they have grown up knowing the need to protect themselves and each other, always on guard, making themselves small and unnoticeable. In fact, when Moses comes to speak for them, their situation actually gets worse. They are punished for his work on their behalf. These people had experienced every abuse imaginable as individuals and as an entire people. So much so that as we talked about earlier, they had given up hope. These are the people that have now been told to run, to grab their children and their grandparents and anything they could carry and run I would imagine that in this moment, no one is feeling triumphant. They are probably expecting that their oppressors, the Pharaoh and his many men, will follow them, that this will be too good to be true, and that when they are found out, the punishment will be worse than if they had stayed. They are terrified. And then Moses, who they are trying to trust, tells them to stand still to do nothing to try to protect themselves and see the deliverance of the Lord. I think that it is beyond amazing that they follow it all. But you know what? I think God knows this. As much as the people of Israel have come to expect only mistreatment at the hand of those in authority over them, God knows to expect that his people will be terrified and have trouble trusting him. His people are stepping into their newfound freedom with traumatized bodies, hearts, and minds. In her book, Trauma and Recovery, Judith Herman explains the need for survivors of trauma to have actual experiences of safety, of love, of consistency in order to heal. The wounds that were created by very real circumstances can only be healed through real and tangible experiences of the opposite. New memories must be encoded, new internal narratives written. I think that God knew that his people would need proof in order to learn the new habit of trust. He starts slowly. He starts by sending them Moses, who is not way above them, but is just as afraid as they are. And then he shows sign after sign of his power, each one doing double duty, frightening the Egyptians, but proving his power to his own people. He also protects his people from the worst of the plagues, 
and he proves himself reliable by giving them an experiment of sorts to run. He tells them to cover their doors with the blood of the lamb and they will be safe. And then he is true to his word. And now he leads them into another massive display of his own trustworthiness. As the people leave Egypt, their worst nightmare comes true. The Pharaoh and his army have indeed come after them. They have not been true to their word. They have now pursued the Israelites across the desert, and here they are, exposed, vulnerable. Man, child, animals, babies, elderly, just out in the open. And God himself, in brilliant, physical, actual pillars of fire and cloud, puts himself between his people and their oppressor. And he exerts control over the very forces of earth, forces that in the culture his people just came out of had divine qualities in and of themselves. The fire, water, earth, cloud. The water moves, and he leads his people through on impossibly dry ground. And he's not done. Then the passage says he confuses the Egyptians on purpose. As all of his people watch, eyes glued in terror, he literally destroys their enemy, the source of their greatest fear, right in front of them. Making good on the promise that Moses made to these people on his behalf in Exodus 14, right before this. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians that you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. God himself has now created a new memory for his people. One that they can encode into themselves. One of the first memories they may have of someone working for good on their behalf. God is building trust with his people because he knows that they need it. They need it to replace, they needed to replace the image of those chariots racing towards them to destroy with the image of God literally covering those same chariots with the strength and power of the sea. But he also knows that this one event will not be enough to rewire the brains of his precious people. And the amazing thing is he's already been at work on this as well. Before they ever set foot out of Egypt, he has paired his protection of their firstborn sons with a meal of remembrance. Scripture calls it a memorial. The feast of the Passover is an embodied experience of safety that is to help his people not only remember his provision, but I believe was to serve also as a grief memorial for them a sign that while they were not to forget his goodness, God knew that they would also never forget their enslavement. The difference is now their memory of their enslavement would be coded with an additional memory of protection and safety. God knew, I think that if God knew the numbers of hair on each of their heads, then he surely knew what his people would need to make the long journey out of the trauma in their bodies. 
We see a pattern play out between God and his people for the rest of the Old Testament. The people of God are met with a new and frightening circumstance, either the lack of food or water, the desire to have a king, the need for the land of their own. And each time the people forget who they are and whose they are, and they seek help and refuge in a variety of coping mechanisms that will never make them whole. And each time God calls them back to himself and reminds them who they are and where they belong in the middle of his love. He does this again and again, like the prophet Hosea illustrates with his own life until he finally sends his son, the son himself in the form of Jesus, who calls out with the same message, return, return to the place where you are loved to the one who loves you, enter your wholeness, a wholeness that can only be found through oneness with God granted through the Son. God has never stopped. He knew the hearts of his people would need consistency and contact in order to develop and build trust and faith. This is the incarnation that Christ came here to us in a body that we could see and know that there was actual blood spilt, an actual death, an actual resurrection, and a man named Thomas and a woman named Mary who would see and know and pass on to their adopted family, us, that it is all true that we are loved and that God is calling him, us back to himself. Just as it is no surprise to God that his ancient people needed many proofs in order to build trust, I do not think it surprises God when we, his children in this age, experience hard things and then have trouble trusting. I think he knows, even as he looks at the faces in this room, in our community, the work it is to build trust. And I think he has a great compassion and endless love for us. I've been thinking about the past few weeks here in our own midst of the retreat together last weekend and of building community in general when we talk about Highwood, when we talk about where we are, who we are, what we want to be, and pondering the work of trust. And I think we can take some plays out of God's playbook here. The first thing I notice is his patience. And I think that we can practice gracious patience with each other. We do not have the intimate knowledge of each other that God has of his people. I don't know the number of hairs on your head. It is going to take us longer to truly know each other. And that is okay and even healthy. Second, we can do the work of remembering together. We started this, we have a timeline downstairs that is now on the floor but because of the humidity, but it's okay. It's down there. We have our post-its over here. We have our laments that we brought together. I think we remember by holding what we share with one another with love and care. Just like God showed with the people of Israel, when we bring each other into our remembering, we can pair a sense of love and goodness even with things that may hurt. And third, we can work together to build new memories. This can be small or large. Contact theory tells us that by simply being around someone more often and having basic small interactions, we feel safer with them. 
We other less. And we are more open to building relationship. We can start slow and steady the everyday to build deeper resonance and trust. I think there is both an invitation and a promise in this for us. I think that if we follow our own pillar of cloud and fire that God has given us in the Holy Spirit, that there will be wholeness on the other side. I believe this will not be simple, easy, or fast. And there is no promise that much like our ancestors in our faith, our demons will not come back up, that our traumas will not revisit us, that more tension will not rise up in us. But the invitation is to keep going. Like the people through the desert, the promise is that God will not leave. The invitation is to keep pushing in to learn from our mistakes. The promise is that God will always and continually call us back to wholeness with himself and others. And in time, we, like our early ancestors in the faith, will learn to trust, not because of our capability, but because of his goodness.